Good morning. Merry Christmas. I am like Doug. I am uh, not done with my Christmas shopping. However, I have started. I have started. See, the difference is, I shouldn't say this, but I will. I only have one person to buy for. Um, so I should be done. But uh, I still have a few other gifts to get to my wife who's working in the nursery today. So if any of you have any ideas, just please let me know. She, uh, you know, Jewelry, okay. Any, any other suggestions out there? More jewelry. Oh, okay. All right. A couple pieces. Well, I too, uh, as, as David said, so many are sick uh, recently, and I too have uh, had a cough for a very long time, so I'm hopeful that I'm not going to cough here this morning all over us, uh, so you can uh, quietly pray for me that I can manage through without coughing. But uh, we are in today the last of three messages in our series uh, entitled, We Saw the Lord's Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the Magi, the wise men from the East in Matthew chapter 2. So begin to turn there, if you will, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I wanted to uh, draw your attention uh, to one of the big ticket items, if you will, in uh, the upcoming uh, political races, if you will, uh, for, for the, the upcoming primary and the upcoming general election. What is one of the, uh, what is one of the biggest big-ticket items on the ballot these days? Anybody have any idea what I'm talking of? Immigration. Hey, Scott got it. That's the one I'm thinking of. There are others, of course. You know, we've got our, the Iraq issue and, and, and a number of different issues. But immigration is clearly something that, uh, that many, many people have many, many different opinions on, no doubt. And today, uh, we're not going to talk about the issue in particular, uh, about which, which side I would agree with. That's really not the point of, of this discussion. But I want to draw your attention to what the issue is all about. It is that people are asking the question, what privileges, what privileges should foreigners be given when they come into our country? Right? That's the question. What privileges should foreigners be given when they come into our country and reside here for any, any given number of uh, days or months or years? And Americans are going to go to the ballot in February and again in November and answer that question. They're going to say, well, this is one of the issues that's important to me and, and based on how I understand this, this issue, this political issue, I'm going to uh, consider voting for the, 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 the candidate who, who agrees with me on this on what kinds of privileges, whether they be every privilege or a few privileges or no privileges at all. But we're asking the question as a country, what privileges should be given to foreigners who come to the United States of America? In our message today, in our text today in Matthew 2, we're going to be looking at a group of foreigners. Um, tradition says that there were three of them, right? The three wise men. Of course, the Scriptures don't say that. But tradition tells us they were, there were three wise men from the East that saw a star and somehow that star represented to them that, that, that a, the birth of a king had been just announced. And they began in their travels and they entered a foreign land, one that was not their own. And they walked into this land and they walked up to the greatest ruler of that land and they said, listen to what we're going to tell you. And they told them a story about a star that they had seen and what that star signifies. And the highest ruler of that land was listening to these foreigners, to these people from a distant land. And he was paying heed to what they said. And we're going to learn a little bit about how King Herod responded to the wise men. But as the wise men continued on their road, they went down south to Bethlehem and they came upon the Christ child. Foreigners. Easterners. Not national Jews. And it was these foreigners who were among the first to get the privilege of beholding the Christ child. 
Now, to the first century uh, Jew, again, this would have been a little bit mind-boggling. Why is it that, that foreigners from a distant land would be able to come into our land and to get the very ear of the highest ruler of our land and to see with their own eyes, to have the privilege of seeing, to being among the first to look upon the Messiah, the King, the Christ child, the very hope of our religion. You see, it was foreigners, wise men from the East, who were given that privilege, who were given that honor, who were given that distinction. And I submit to you that that was a very, very, very unique, unique aspect among the groups of people who were among the first to see the Lord's Christ. Now, we've looked at three groups of people thus far. We looked at the shepherds a couple Sundays ago. And we talked about how the shepherds were a very unlikely candidate to see the Christ child. They were very lowly and humble people. And yet, Jesus, God, God in His wisdom decided to, to showcase His Son for the very first time to shepherds. Very unusual group of people. The second group of people was, uh, we looked at Simeon and Anna, two prophets in the temple in Jerusalem, two very faithful and devout prophets, pious prophets. And God honored those prophets and allowed them to be among the first to lay eyes on Jesus Christ. And now we're looking at a third group of people. Uh, again, this one would be a little bit more on the unusual side, perhaps the most unusual of all. That Easterners, that foreigners would be given the privilege of beholding the Lord's Christ. Once again, the title of my message today, third in a three-part series, We Saw the Lord's Christ the Magi from Matthew 2, 1-12. to And that phrase, we saw the Lord's Christ, is inspired from Luke 2, 26, where Simeon is told that he would not taste death before he would see the Lord's Christ. Let's take a look at our text today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-12. to Matthew 2, 1-12 to says this. <coughs> Excuse me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, it's prophet Micah, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. <coughs> and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would give us wisdom as we read Your Word today. That Your Spirit would guide our study, open our eyes, enlighten us. Father, that we would be able to see just the uniqueness and the exceptional nature of these wise men, men from the East, an unusual group whom You would show Your Son to, whom You would give the privilege of being among the very first to lay eyes on the Christ child. I pray, Father, that You would help us to 
enter into this story and to see just what it is you might have for us to learn today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 1 again and verse 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen His star in the east and have come to worship Him. I want to ask the question very simply, uh, who are the wise men from the east? Who are these wise men from the east? Now, in Greek, the, the term that we come across in Matthew's Gospel is the term uh, magoi or, or magi, uh, or, or where we get the English word magi in your scriptures, or perhaps wise men in the, in the New King James there. Um, the, the word itself in Greek literally means magician, um, but it is, not simply, uh, it is not simply to be taken as such. Uh, magician is a possible translation uh, of this word, but also there's a great deal more involved in it. And as we focus in on this question, uh, really one of the first things that, that, that comes to uh, light as you do a historical study of Magi in the ancient Near East is that these were astronomers. They were skilled in, in the aspect of astronomy and of science. <coughs> In particular, uh, we, we, might, uh, we really might label them scientists. They were, they were men who would ob- observe the physical world and that was their course of study. Uh, oftentimes, they were employed by the state. And so, uh, much like uh, maybe a state university professor, if you will, of these days, uh, a scientist, uh, one who would study the natural world, the physical world, and also, in particular, they would study the stars. Astronomy. Uh, the Bible indicates that King Nebuchadnezzar, you might remember him, uh, of Babylon, kept a group of magi close by him who would guide him in conducting the affairs of his kingdom. Uh, you might recall in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel, a Jew, in exile in Babylon, was promoted to the highest uh, chief a Magnus, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar's court of Magi. If you read Daniel chapter 2, you will find that Daniel was appointed the head of all the Magi in Babylon. That is to say that he was, if you will, the chairman or the president of all the astronomers, of all the scientists, of all those, uh, in Daniel's case, who might interpret dreams or who might uh, give the king wisdom in conducting his affairs. And so it could be said that Daniel himself was um, a chief magi. Um, because, uh, excuse me, the, the Jewish uh, philosopher uh, Philo was his name. He was a contemporary of Jesus Christ. And he lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And, and Philo wrote of magi in the east, in particular from the nation of Persia, which descended from Babylon, and he spoke very highly of these magi. In some cases, magi were looked upon as magicians and you know, uh, more dark arts. And in some cases, they were looked upon as genuinely skilled astronomers and scientists. And Philo uh, looked upon the, the magi in Persia and made comments in his writings about how skilled they were. And so it's quite likely that these magi were also of Persian descent because Philo was writing during the same time period um, maybe a little bit later on, but very close to the same time period that these magi arrived on scene. And so, uh, in the manner in which they were welcomed by Herod, as we will see in just a moment, it could be that these magi were from Persia, the same kind of magi that Philo spoke so highly of. Finally, and this is where it's, uh, it becomes... Uh, Really, much of this is speculative here in this third point, but it very well could be true. There is a possible genealogical link that these Magi have with the Jews who were exiled to Babylon in the 6th and 5th century B.C. Uh, actually, there's a correction there. In the 7th and 6th century B.C. My mistake. The, when the Jews were exiled to Babylon in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C., Again, Daniel was promoted to the chief of the Magi. 
And it is quite likely that despite the fact that many, many Jews returned under King Cyrus of Persia, returned to the nation of Israel and returned to Jerusalem, also a great deal of Jews remained in Persia, remained in and around Babylon. And so it is very, very likely, uh, it, is pro- it is possible that these Magi had some kind of Jewish blood in their lineage. It had only been 600 years since the Jews were exiled to Babylon. And isn't it interesting that these Magi were interested in coming to worship a Jewish king? Look at the text again. Take a look at verse 2 in our passage today. Notice what they say. It says, they, they go to Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Friends, I submit to you that this is a most unusual group of questions for a group of Easterners to ask uh, Herod. Anti-Semitic views uh, like we know of them today were all the more prevalent in first century. Uh, During the time of Jesus' birth, uh, the Jews, uh, like oftentimes today, uh, were not looked upon well by many foreign nations. And it is uh, very unusual that these Persian scientists, these Persian astronomers, would have an interest in a Jewish king and who would would have an interest in traveling hundreds of miles to ask and inquire and find and worship, no less, a Jewish king. I submit to you that that is a very unique thing for them to do. And it may show that these Easterners may have had some kind of genealogical tie to the Jews who were exiled to Babylon. Now, going to our second question, uh, which I'm sure many of you have questions about. What about the star? What was this star in the sky? What was it that these men from most likely Persia were looking upon and caused them to travel hundreds of miles away from their homeland into uh, Jerusalem and into Bethlehem. Well, many, many theories are out there, friends. Many, many theories. Um, Some say it was a meteor. Others say it was a comet. Some say it was a nova or a planet. And the list goes on and on. Um, The theories are abundant. And I cannot possibly, in a few moments, uh, do it justice, let alone in an entire sermon. If we devoted an entire sermon to this, Uh, we would not do it justice, the theories that abound on this matter. Nevertheless, I I want to emphasize that no theory is without criticism. No theory is without criticism. And the theories, ultimately, we need to break it down because they should be coming in two forms here. And I want you to to note this clearly um, before you yourselves jump to any conclusions about the Star of Bethlehem. First, you've got to answer one extremely important question, and it is this. Was the star a miraculous phenomenon or a natural phenomenon? And what do I mean by that? Well, number one, a miraculous phenomenon. I think that's a little bit self-explanatory. Was it something that God did outside the natural order of the universe that is not reproducible in the natural universe, could not uh, occur apart from, from God instantaneously making it occur within the cosmos, Uh, Is this something much like the resurrection or the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ? Is this something that was miraculously accomplished by God in the sky and cannot be reproducible and we could not possibly attempt to go back and look for this star? That's the first question you've got to answer. The Bible doesn't attest to whether it was miraculous or natural. But the second question is this. Was it a natural phenomenon? And what I mean to say is, Did God, in His providence, use the natural course of astronomical movement in the sky to mark His Son's birth? In other words, was there a conjunction of some sort in the sky? Was there a conjunction of planets or some some kind of, of sign in the sky which was a natural phenomenon one that was going to occur and that God simply chose at that moment in time to make that the period in which He would bring forth the birth of His Son. 
Because he knew that these Easterners looking upon the sky would say, wow, that is a tremendously unique sight. Whether it's the light or the size or the movement of the star, they would have looked upon it and said, my goodness, something significant must have happened over Bethlehem and caused them to go on their way. It's very possible God could have used the natural course of astronomical events. It's very possible that God could have used a miraculous kind of star to mark the birth of His Son. To be, to be truthful and honest with the Scriptures, it doesn't answer this question. It does not answer this question. Um, I, for one, tend to believe that this was more of a miraculous sign. Uh, I think if, if you look at the pattern in which God is announcing the birth of His Son, vision of angels, dreams to Mary, Joseph, Zacharias, Elizabeth, the shepherds, all of these dreams and visions, the list goes on and on of miraculous events that are surrounding the birth of His Son. Why wouldn't the star also be a miraculous event, one that cannot be reproducible or cannot be seen by us this side of the birth of Christ? However, some believe that it is a natural phenomenon. I do want to just make note of this, and this is, this is fascinating, folks, but uh, one for your own studies if you'd like. If it was a natural phenomenon, which some uh, Christians suggest it could be, then technological advances that you and I are now privy to make it possible, make it possible for us to one day find a reasonable explanation of just what the Magi would have seen in the sky. You see, there are software programs out there today uh, which you can buy over the Internet, uh, one of which is called uh, Starry Night. I don't know if you, any of you have ever heard of it. The Starry Night program, you know what it allows you to do? It allows you to go back to any point in human history and look from any geological point on the earth and look up at the stars and see their alignment as it would have been 2,000 years ago. Our current technology enables scientists and astronomers to do just that. And so many, many Christian scientists at this, as we speak... Um, are attempting to do just that, assuming, assuming that it's number two. On a personal level, I assume it's number one. But those who assume it's number two, they are naturally uh, inclined to look back and to use these, this technology to look up at the sky over Persia and to look up at the sky over Jerusalem and Bethlehem and to see what the sky may have looked like during the time of Christ's birth. Um, now again, I don't want to, uh, to uh, move toward an unsolved mystery kind of mentality here with us this morning. Uh, all that is to say, uh, it is fascinating, uh, the study of the Star of Bethlehem. And it's something that if any of you are interested in, in looking more into, I have some resources for you to consider and I'd love to talk with you about that afterwards. In any event... Miraculous or natural, there was a star, there was a sight to behold in the skies above Israel. And these Persian scientists acted upon what they saw. Let's turn to verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, okay, they've asked him the questions. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? We've come to worship Him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, <coughs> but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people Israel. When the Magi came, remember foreigners from a distant land. When they came, they walked up to the highest ruler of the land, King Herod. The highest ruler of the Jews 
one who was a, a partial Jew, really of Edomian descent. He came from the line of the Edomites or Esau, but he had a little bit of uh, Jewish blood in his line. And they came to Herod and they asked for his ear. And he gave it to them. He gave his ear to these foreigners. Perhaps indicating that they their school of uh, astronomy was well respected. And he listens to their claims. And that as they're making their statements, as they're making their, their comments about this site that they've seen, there must have been some significant truth to what they said because Herod pays heed to what the Magi say. Verse 7 indicates that Herod asked about the star in the sky, which suggests that this star was unusually unique in its light or size or movement. It was not recognizable to the human eye. Herod asked about it. He had to inquire of it. What is this star? Where is it in the sky? Now, we don't know at this point, did the star disappear for a time? Uh, the text actually does not indicate that. Some scholars suggest that it does disappear, and that's why Herod is, is asking somewhat in past tense about the star. But we're not sure if it had disappeared for a time or not. Nevertheless, Herod is asking about it, inquiring about it, and it took a professional astronomer to point out to him that something unique was happening in the heavens. <coughs> and when the Magi informed Herod about the star and explained to him the uniqueness of this event in the heavens, Herod knew this was no ordinary star. And so Matthew tells us, look back at verse 4, and it says that Herod pulls aside the chief priests and the scribes. That is to say, he pulls aside the scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures. And upon hearing the Magi come and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod, having knowledge of the Jewish religion, knows instinctively that this king that they speak of may very well be the Messiah, the Christ child. And so Herod pulls aside the chief priests and the scribes, the scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he inquires of them, he says, tell me again, what do the Scriptures say about the location of the Messiah's birth? And the chief priests and the scribes, they turn to Herod the king and they respond to him and say, well, Micah, one of our prophets, 750 years ago, 750 years ago, 750 years ago said that Bethlehem would be the location of the birth of the Messiah. And they recite Micah 5.2 to King Herod. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people, Israel. Friends, take heart in the veracity of Scripture, in the reliability of it. 750 years prior to the birth of Christ, that birth was predicted by the prophet Micah. Now let's pause a moment and put yourself in the shoes of Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. You've just been told by eastern foreigners, no less, eastern astronomers, that the heavens declare that a Jewish king has been born. You yourself have just searched the Scriptures and you found in the prophet of Micah that it was predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Chief priests and scribes, experts in the law, religious authorities in Israel, that the highest of the highest among the Jews, um, among those who knew the, the Torah, who knew the Old Testament, who seemingly were awaiting the coming deliverer of Israel. Um, wouldn't you anticipate that your reaction to this news would be positive? Wouldn't you anticipate that you, being a scholar of the Scriptures, being one who is compensated for doing the work of, of translating and interpreting and understanding the Scriptures, 
would it not be natural for us to assume that these scribes and these chief priests of Israel would have responded to the birth of the King of Israel, the Messiah, in a positive light? Is that not reasonable to ask? But how did Jerusalem respond to the news of the birth of the Messiah? Notice verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod's troubling doesn't surprise me. All Jerusalem's surprises me. You see that all there, if you look at verse 4, the next group of people mentioned in Jerusalem are the chief priests and the scribes. And so, at the very least, the all of Jerusalem includes the religious Jewish authorities in Israel, in Jerusalem no less, in the first century. All Jerusalem includes many, many (coughs) pious Jewish religious authorities who are leading their people, giving them hope about a coming Redeemer who would bring them deliverance and salvation. And yet it is these leaders who Matthew notes were troubled by this news. I think it's safe to say that in short, Matthew is attempting to convey to you and to me that this newborn baby was a significant, significant threat to the power of King Herod and to the power of the religious authorities of Israel. They had become so accustomed to their position of prominence, their position of power, that even the coming of the Messiah, even the coming of the very hope of the faith that they possessed, could not persuade them to transfer their power to the Anointed One. You know, people go to great lengths to avoid losing power, don't they? Um, you, you know, you you might look up you might look at this in a, in a light or in a lighter manner as, as somewhat like a demotion. You know, if you've ever been demoted, I, I'm sure a few of us have. Um, you know, some people would react to a demotion in a job very, very negatively. They become very, very bitter, very, very troubled. Uh, very, very upset. And uh, we, when we lose power, when we lose position, when we lose prominence, it can anger us sometimes. There's a, a unique story of, of uh, impending demotion that happened in Rome not 60 years before this moment in time that we're reading today. <clears throat> there was a Roman historian. His name was uh, Suetonius. And Suetonius uh, indicates that in 63 B.C., 63 B.C., a, uh, the Roman Senate had convened. And they were told, presumably by a group of magi, no less, presumably by a group of astronomers, they were told by a group of scientists in Rome that... Uh, that the skies indicated that a new Roman ruler had been born. This is according to Roman history. Um, it, it very well could be legend. I'm not, I'm not here to, to establish the veracity of this, this story. I'm here to note the, the response of the Senate. The Roman Senate heard this group of astronomers and they claimed that, that they looked up in the sky in 63 B.C. and what they saw suggested that a new Roman ruler had just been born. Now, at that time, Rome, being run by a senate, was a little bit scared and a little bit on edge to hear that a new Roman ruler had been born. They liked their positions of power, their positions of prominence. And the idea of one powerful Roman coming into their territory and taking over their positions of power was not of interest to them. And so what did they do? Take a look at what Suetonius notes in his historical records. This is fascinating. He says, A few months before Augustus Caesar, 
was born, a portent or a sign was generally observed in Rome, which gave warning that nature was pregnant with a king for the Roman people. And so what did the Senate do? Thereupon, the Senate in consternation decreed that no male child born that year should be reared. Let me translate that. That is to say, upon hearing news that a Roman ruler was coming, Augustus Caesar no less, we would later find out, the Roman Senate issued a decree that no baby boy be born in Rome that year. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? What the Roman Senate saw in the skies may have been true or false. We really don't know. But that's besides the point. What should catch our eye is what the Roman Senate did in response to hearing the news that they were going to lose power. If it were true, if the sign in the sky was true, they were prepared to do anything they could to preserve their power even if it meant destroying all the male children to be born that year. Uh, if, If this story does not sound familiar, it should. Because what King Herod is about to do in our story today is not unlike what the Roman Senate purposed to do some 60 years prior. King Herod, upon hearing the news that the Christ child was to be born, and in the face of demotion, in the face of losing power, he purposed himself to destroy all baby boys to be born in Jerusalem. Before we get to that text, take a look at verse 7. It says this, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now, what is the significance of verse 7? Uh, notice the word secretly. Here is Herod, and he is secretly calling aside the wise men and determining from them what time the star appeared. Herod privately asked the wise men to come into his chamber, and he asked them, when did it appear for the very first time? Now, there's no sufficient reason why Herod would have asked this question other than the fact that Herod was already intent on identifying the age parameters, the age parameters which he could use if needed in an attempt to murder this child. And so in Herod's mind, whether the shining of the star meant conception or meant birth, it really was of no consequence to Herod. He was, in his mind, establishing the age parameters within which he calculated that this child could be no more than two years of age. And soon after his encounter with the wise men, Herod decreed that all male children two years and younger in Bethlehem be slaughtered. Matthew 2.16 says this, Herod sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. (coughs) In 63 B.C., the Roman Senate responded to the prediction of a newborn king by wishing to kill all baby boys that might fulfill the prophecy. And here we are 60 years, about 60 years later, at the birth of Christ, and King Herod of Judea, a puppet ruler of the Roman Empire, was doing the exact same thing. But prior to this horrendous decree, Herod facetiously told the Magi, he said, go and find the child first and report back to me where, where he is so that I too may come and worship him. Take a look at verse 8. It says this, And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for this young child and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship Him also. 
Clearly, Herod had no intention of doing this. Uh, It was his expressed desire to kill the child upon finding him. Unfortunately for Herod, he trusted that the Magi would pay heed to his request. Verse 9, When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The Magi leave Jerusalem, and they head southwest following the star. On their journey, in, as, they, as they follow the star, the star, it stops. It ceases its movement over the small town of, Jeru- of Bethlehem, precisely as the prophet Micah had predicted. And the star led the wise men, the Magi, to the location of Jesus, And it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It had been weeks or perhaps months since they had journeyed now. And finally they were beholding the Christ child. And notice what they they do in response. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice they came into a house. Uh, This is different from Luke's uh, manger or stall or feeding trough. You see, by now some time had passed since Jesus' birth. Um, Most likely, this is also after Jesus was presented in the temple and Simeon and Anna saw the Christ child. And so we can assume from these uh, indicators that Jesus is somewhere between six months old and a year old, as a matter of fact. Six months, excuse me, six weeks old to a year old. That Joseph and Mary are in a house suggests that uh, either they had taken up some sort of temporary uh, residence or, or rented a home in Bethlehem so that the mother and the child could recover for a time, or that, that they had someone open up their home to them, maybe a family member or someone who had, who had uh, been, been privy to the, to the great news of the coming of the Messiah, and they wanted to open up their home to them. And so they were residing in a home at this time. And the Magi come into this home, and uh, by the way, I'm, so I'm sorry to say that if we're going to be biblical about our nativity scenes, we need to remove the Magi from the manger scene. I'm very sorry if that disappoints any of you. I leave them up there anyway. But the Magi come into the home, not the manger, and they see Jesus with Mary. And they fall prostrate to the floor and begin to worship Him. And they present the child with gifts, with gold, with frankincense, and with myrrh. Uh, the gift of myrrh. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that many of you have heard uh, different symbolism of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And I'm, I'm here to focus merely on the myrrh because uh, so often uh, we are told that myrrh is an oil or an ointment uh, which is used to embalm those who have passed, uh, who are about to be laid in a tomb or a, or a grave, and myrrh would be used in conjunction with wrapping linen around the body before the body was placed in the ground or in the tomb. And that is accurate. Myrrh is used in such fashion. And uh, some suggest, some scholars suggest that it may be significant here that, that the gift of myrrh may have been symbolic of the fact that, that the, the Magi were, uh, through God's providence, giving Jesus a gift which suggests that He was going to die. Um, it's possible that the myrrh had that significance. Uh, I think that the, that the significance of myrrh is perhaps a bit overstated, however, because you see the vast majority of the time in Scripture, if you look at your Old Testament carefully and do a study of the oil of myrrh, you will find that myrrh is actually most often used in the context of, of marriage or in the, in the, of the marriage bed. Uh, if you look at the Song of Solomon, myrrh is used frequently with respect to the relationship between a man and a woman. And in the book of Esther, Esther, before she becomes queen, before she becomes queen, she is bathed in myrrh for six months. She receives a, a treatment, almost like a, ladies, you might, you might uh, liken it to a spa treatment. And for a year, she receives a, a spa treatment, if you will, 
half of which is devoted to bathing her in the oil of myrrh. And so, I hesitate a bit to suggest that that the myrrh given to Jesus Christ was symbolic of the fact that He was going to die. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, of course, we see that that Jesus Christ was, was coming to be the sacrificial Lamb of God and to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. But whether that is symbolized in the gift of myrrh by the Magi, uh, perhaps that's a bit overstated. Uh, It may simply have been that the gold and the frankincense and myrrh were precious and valuable gifts that the Magi wanted to give to the Christ child. And that may have been all the significance of the gifts, that they wanted to give them something of value, something of great and precious commodity. And these gifts were valuable to Jesus and to his family because they were meager and poor people. And some suggest that these gifts, the gold and the frankincense, the incense and the myrrh, that these gifts were used and perhaps sold by Joseph and Mary so that they were able to leave Bethlehem and go and live in Egypt while Herod was massacring all the children in and around Bethlehem. It's very possible that this gift enabled them with the financial resources to leave Bethlehem and to reside in Egypt for perhaps a few years. The time came for the Magi to return home. Now they had recalled Herod's wish to return to him and to inform him of where the Christ child was. But before they... Uh, begin the journey back to Jerusalem to see Herod, something happens. Verse 12. <coughs> says, Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The Magi are warned by God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. Yet again, another miraculous event in and around the time of the birth of Christ. This is one of about a dozen Dreams and visions that you find in Matthew and Luke surrounding the birth of the Christ child. The Magi take the warning very seriously. And they depart for their own country, perhaps for Persia, another route. Rather than taking the normal road north to Jerusalem and east across Jericho, instead they go home by a different means. And in so doing, they protect Jesus Christ and protect His family from the harm that King Herod wished to do them. Now, what, it, what we've looked at the story here. We've looked at, uh, at this final group of people who were privileged to be among the first to look upon the Christ child. What is it that, besides the, the history of it, and besides the, um, the significance of, of these events, what is it that you and I can walk away with? What is it that we can uh, be mindful of as we leave uh, this Christmas series, as, as we begin to celebrate the birth of Christ in just a few short days? I want to make note of this as, we, as we've looked at this series. Take a look at this uh, closing thoughts, if you will. Um, the privilege of welcoming the Lord's Christ into the world, that privilege was given to a very unusual group of characters. It was given to lowly shepherds, It was given to faithful prophets like Simeon and Anna. And it was given to foreign astronomers, the Magi. That privilege was withheld. It was not given to those who viewed Jesus' birth as a troubling event. Rather than worship the newborn king, these kinds of people were more interested in retaining their own power and keeping the status quo. And I think that's significant. I think that's significant for us today. I know many of you in this room today um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you have welcomed Him into your life. But I imagine there are a few of you um, who have not done that. You're approaching Christmas two days away and um, I'm, I'm sure many of you celebrate Christmas as a, as a general holiday, but you've never come to grips with the fact that, that this is actually the Savior of the world whom we are celebrating. And that faith in Him is what enables you to become a child of God and to live with God forever in the kingdom to come. And to you who are 
um, who are not believers today, to you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to I mention this to you. Have you allowed the person of Jesus Christ to interrupt your life? Have you allowed Him to interrupt your life as He did the lives of Herod and the scribes and the chief priests some 2,000 years ago? Or do you prefer that your life remain the way it is? Do you prefer that, that nothing change in your life? Do you prefer that you retain your own status quo, if you will? I say to you very clearly that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And that by believing in Him, by believing in Him, you can live with God forever. I urge you, I urge you, this is the greatest decision you can make, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved this Christmas. That is the meaning of Christmas. That is the purpose of this holiday that we celebrate. And I urge you to allow Jesus Christ to interrupt your life in a dramatic way. Allow Him to do that today. Believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To you who are Christians, to you who are believers, I want to say this. Continue to open up your heart and welcome God's presence in your life. Put aside any callousness in your heart and reestablish Christ as the center of your home because blessing and privilege comes to those who humbly seek Christ day by day. Um, The lowly shepherds, (coughs) Simeon and Anna, the Magi, foreigners, foreigners from the East, received the privilege of welcoming the Christ child. Unlikely characters. And I believe that they were given that privilege because they were, they were humble and they were meek and they were, seeking, they were seeking God. They were seeking the Lord's Christ. And so you who are Christians, continue to seek God. Continue to draw near to Him. And He will draw near to you. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank You for just the, the beauty of Your Word. The beauty of the story of Your Son. This child, Father, was shown to unusual people. People whom those of the first century would not have expected. They would have expected the, the kings and scholars and religious authorities to look upon this Messiah. And yet You showed Christ to shepherds to meager prophets, to foreigners from the East. You showed the Christ child to people who were, who were humble and who were meek and who were earnestly seeking Your truth. Let that be a reminder to us today that You show Yourself to those who humbly seek You. <clears throat> Father, this Christmas I pray that it would be a special time for each of us that we would remember that this is the time to celebrate Your Son, the Savior of the the world. Father, we worship Him. We ask that, that He would be especially welcomed in our homes. That He would be especially welcomed in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. Father, thank You for the gift of Your Son. We are so grateful for Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.